we are probably the only research area that is trying to make void less space. We want to make things basically disappear. So gravity, for example, plays an only a, a totally minor role in the molecular level. The idea also of Richard Feynman making nanoscopic machines that can then produce other nanoscopic machines. Welcome to the 19th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Simon Krause, a group leader in nanochemistry at the Max Planck Institute for Solid State Research. His work focuses on a lot of different topics, including porous structures, molecular machines and switches, and chemistry with light. Simon was able to combine these topics by creating light-driven molecular machines. We'll have to talk more about that, but for now, welcome, Simon. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for the very nice invitation. Before we start, do you have a fun science fact for our listeners? Well, I mean, a, a fun fact, I guess, would be that there's a big community of uh, researchers that try to make porous materials. But at the end of the day, I always also tell students that we are really in the business of trying to make void. So we are probably the only research area that is trying to make void less space. We want to make things basically disappear and generate the largest space of nothing. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I guess in that instance, we are out for making nothing, so to speak. <laughs> That's really cool. And is it really the, the idea of making like the largest empty structure? Like in most fields of, of science, uh, I would guess the right answer would be it depends. Um, but um, as researchers nowadays tend to hunt for records, um, I guess there's also a certain community that tries to make the largest void in terms of the diameter. There's a big hunt for largest pore volume or largest specific surface area. All of these are somewhat interlinked, but in, in the essence, I guess it, it really depends on what kind of field or property you're looking for and also who you talk to, basically. Maybe we'll dive now more into your work and we'll start very broadly. You are working with molecular machines and switches. What is that? So essentially, this field kind of started off like many scientific discoveries, probably serendipitous, but essentially it's been known for quite a while that there are certain molecules that can change their shape upon changes in the physical surroundings like temperature or irradiation with light. Um, some are also responsive towards chemical triggers, such as a change in pH value or the addition of other chemical triggers. And so what is neat about these molecules, these switches, is that we really have the ability to incorporate dynamic features and structural changes on the molecular level. And in fact, although this has been discovered by scientists around 100 years ago in, in artificial or in small molecules, our biological systems, like our body, utilizes such tiny molecular machines in, in a lot of different instances, uh, probably the most famous molecular machine is ATP synthase, which produces ATP, which is the kind of chemical fuel in our body or in majority of biological systems. And it does that in a very elegant chemical fashion, which also involves unidirectional rotation of a protein complex. And so usually natural systems don't do things for fun, um, but they usually have a purpose assigned to that. And in this case, it's a, it, this rotation also facilitates transmembranal diffusion of certain chemicals or chemical stimulation. 
And this, this field of molecular machines, which I entered uh, in 2019 when I started uh, my postdoctoral research with Ben Feringa, really is draining a lot of inspiration from biological systems and tries to mimic them with artificial systems that might have different functionalities, uh, improved functionalities, or utilize different triggers such as light, which is often not a physical trigger in many biological systems. But maybe also to give you an example that light indeed also plays a, a role about chemical systems, for example, our vision. The receptors in our human eyes are also based on photo switches um, that can convert a light trigger into information that is then being processed by nervous systems in our brain to see each other. I mean, you as the listeners cannot see us right now, but we see each other. And so there's a lot of millions of chemical or photophysical reactions going on as we speak. So it's not linked to biology, but it mimics it in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we also we also kind of try to understand why certain biological systems use this kind of these kind of dynamic features. Like they as I mentioned, usually any natural system has a, a purpose. There's very little things in our body, for example, that don't have a purpose. I mean sure you might like you do unnecessarily care or not. Uh, but at the end of the day, evolution has kind of outruled the unnecessary things and, and most of the aspects that we have uh, in terms of our functionality uh, have a purpose. And so we will kind of try to understand why these systems exist, how they came to be, and and how we can kind of generate artificial systems that can sort of mimic the properties, but also the correlated functions. So for example, transport properties. In A couple of years ago, during the COVID pandemic, Jack Evans was now a group leader at the University of Adelaide in Australia, and myself have met for a beer when the first lockdown was over in Germany and kind of discussed this idea if I could use unidirectional rotation of such a molecular motor. Um, so a relatively complex molecule that elegantly can turn light irradiation um, and thermal energy input into unidirectional rotation, we're kind of wondering if that molecular process can actually facilitate transport of a molecule in the port channel. Now, Jack is a computational chemist, which means that um, usually when he enters a lab, everyone leaves the lab. <laughs> Uh, if he enters the lab, but he, he is a brilliant mind in the sense that he, he can really make up uh, systems, theoretical systems, which have also no relation to real world molecules, but it mimics the underlying physical aspects of the system very well. And so if you really want to kind of establish a new phenomenon, a new physical phenomenon, you want to describe it, you usually want to start with a simplified system rather than, you know, tackle, for example, the description of a multi-protein complex with millions of atoms. At uh, first, you want to try something simple. And, and this is the approach that we took. And he was able to show in the simulations that, indeed, if you have a certain set of prerequisites, uh, for example, a collective uh, rotation of these motors in, in the same direction, um, then you can indeed activate a transport, which means that you can enhance the, the shuttling of a molecule inside a, a small pore, um, but you can also direct the molecular transport, meaning that you can establish something like a molecular pump. And I think, although this is a nice description to compare to a macroscopic system, it is very important to understand that at the molecular level or the nanoscale, 
the physical interactions are very different to compare to our world. So gravity, for example, plays an only a, a totally minor role on the molecular level, while the intermolecular interactions, electrostatic interactions, are, are key features that help everything stick together and, and help to attract or to um, repulse molecules. And so I think this is also what kind of fascinates me about these aspects is that although many people kind of imagine this field of molecular machines as mimicking macroscopic machinery. So uh, Ben Ferinka, for example, has created the first nanocar, for example, which is very much reminiscent of of a microscopic car. It has four wheels, it has a chassis. But then if you think about how such a car would drive on the surface, you would immediately recognize that it's basically just sticks on the surface. It would be like a car that is glued to the surface with each point of contact simply because the physical interactions on the molecular level are, are different. And so there are now car races. So there are nano car races where people have different molecules that they race with a scanning tunneling microscopy tip over over a surface and they they make courses so they they turn and they have to pass obstacles but if you look at the molecules that people now use in these races they don't look anything like a macroscopic car they often have very different shapes they don't have something like a chassis or a, a wheel but instead they have features like a strong dipole moment for example or other chemical functionalities that repulse it from the surface. And so I think this is really very much what fascinates me is that we, we kind of try to mimic aspects that we know from the macroscopic world function like pumping, unidirectional rotation or translation, but the design principles that we need to apply to really achieve functionality like this on the molecular level is different. And so thinking about how molecules that could have this function is very intriguing, I think. And then uh, this is kind of a stepping stone to what we then do in, in my research group, where we actually take it a step further and think about if I have such a molecule that has a certain dynamic feature, how can I actually utilize and incorporate those features into an extended solid state structure? So a crystal in which trillions and trillions of such machines are co-assembled in, in a regular array. So often we work with crystals in which those machines are like in an assembly line where you have a, trillions of small robots assembled in a uniform lattice. How, how can we establish those and how can we then facilitate that those machines actually interact or co collectively operate with one another? So this is kind of one of the key questions that we currently have in my research group. Wow, you have said so many amazing things. You have like microscopic or yeah, molecular cars racing. <laughs> yes, you can, you can just Google it. It's, I think the, this year was the third or second or third edition of this race. It takes, I think it takes place in Switzerland. Uh, and there are, it's very international, a couple of teams. So I really recommend check it out. I think they actually have also a stream or, or some kind of video presentation on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, well, so definitely just, have to check it out. Yeah, just Google nano car race. You, you, you'll find it. Nano car race. All right for those cars, but maybe also for the molecules that you're using, they move, but how fast can they move and how far can they move? I mean, the, the motion is always a question of a reference point. So if those molecules are on a flat surface, so let's say we take a, a copper surface, for example, a surface that is perfectly flat, 
then they likely will not move because they just stick to the surface. It would be like if you would try to walk on the sun. Gravity would be so high. I mean, obviously, you would burn. Um, yeah. But if you think about a planet which has a very strong gravity, then you would not be able to get up because your muscles would not be strong enough to withstand gravity. So that's kind of how you could uh, imagine having a molecule that is very attractive stuck to a surface. Now, we overcome this interaction by basically using those molecules and incorporate them in crystals, which are porous, because the pore space around it is void in which those molecules then can freely operate. They don't have any restrictions. They don't have other molecules which would they, they would collide, or they don't have any other molecules that would restrict their motion. And... There are a lot of examples of molecular machines as individual molecules that are predominantly investigated in solution. So you then use the solvent in which the molecules are in very low concentration, meaning that they don't basically meet each other. They swim randomly in the soup of solvent and machine, um, but the concentration is relatively low, so there will not be a lot of interactions to block their um, dynamics. So if we think about the molecular motors that Ben Feringa has, has developed, they turn this light simulation unidirectional rotation, but in solution, there's no reference point. So often these molecules are described as having a stator and a rotor, but if the stator is not fixed to anything, uh, how do you distinguish between the rotation? You know, the whole molecule will spin all the time. So this is very much, although you are able to investigate those dynamics with different spectroscopic methodologies, for example, if you don't have a reference point, which you, which you kind of consider as your static point, and then something moves around that static point, which is the case in solution, it becomes very difficult. While in the solid state, you certainly have part of the molecules incorporated into your crystal lattice and they are static they don't exhibit those dynamics which means that now we not only are able to have a static reference point to investigate that motion for example rotation but in addition to that we can actually utilize those dynamics because now you can translate the dynamics to another molecule because part of the molecule itself is fixed in a lattice that would be something like maybe a, a rocket in space, but there's no stars or planets yes. around you, so you don't know how fast you're going or where. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, speed is another uh, is another aspect. I mean, you mentioned this. So there's a lot of discussions on the speed or the frequency with which with these, these machines can operate. But for that, we also have to understand that many of the mechanisms in these molecular machines are based on ratcheting mechanisms which means there's always a reversible reaction. So this is referred to microscopic reversibility, which means that in chemical systems, the forward and backward reaction both can happen. So you can walk forward, but also the same steps backward. And really with this elegant ratcheting mechanisms, um, let's say with 10 steps back and forth, you go one step further forward. And so there's a lot of still Brownian motion or general noise, let's say, motion that is noise that has no directional component to it in those systems. But with the ratcheting mechanism, you still move forward a little bit with, the, with each step. And so it's difficult in some of these systems to describe what speed would actually mean. You could think about it, You would, if you're sitting in a car, you would drive um, 10 meters forward, 10 meters backward, 10 meters forward, 10 meters backward, 
10 times unless at some step you just drive 11 meters forward. And then you go 10 meters backwards again, back and forth all the time. And so you will move forward at some point, slowly and steadily. Um, but it is, uh, it is kind of difficult to, to tune these systems in a way that they become very efficient uh, towards this unidirectional component. And there are a lot of examples of different designs in these molecular machines. I mean, life-stimulated systems is, a, is only one example. Others can be driven using chemicals. There's a big debate at the moment whether this is catalysis-based or whether you should call them molecular catalysts or molecular fuels. So some people refer to them as fuels. Um, so th this field is very interesting in the sense that the, it really tackles super fundamental aspects of chemistry and physics on a very elegant and, and creative way. And, and certainly all these molecules have very unique properties. And so it, it, I'm, I'm certain that in a matter of time, there will be some of these aspects and features uh, used in, in products. So, um, for example, there's a big field of photopharmacology in which drugs are um, attached or functionalized with a photo switch, which renders the drug active or inactive depending on the light radiation. So you can think of antibiotics, which are in the non-activated state, completely useless. They, they don't act as an antibiotic, uh, which is great because, as we all know, the usage, the strong usage of antibiotics is causing real problems with wastewater and also the biosphere. And so you could think of having smart antibiotics, which are inactive and only if you apply a light source to the area in your body where you require that antibiotics, like an area of infection, you apply your light source that activates the antibiotics locally and only in that range they become active. And so I think those kind of discoveries are very close to commercialization. There are several groups working on that. We take a different path. We want to have up the challenge of um, trying to see if we can utilize those molecular aspects in the solid state. And that, that brings together a whole different aspect of chemistry. So we are not only trying to develop the chemistry of making these, but also develop techniques, experimental techniques and, and tests of how we can actually then characterize these materials. One thing that I thought about when you talked about antibiotics, for example, and you have the light switch, and you only put light on the area where you want antibiotics to work. How do you do that practically? In the sense, does the rest of your body need to stay in the dark? <laughs> um, you would use a light source that has a wavelength where the intensity is very low. So the human tissue has a certain absorptivity in the spectral range, which is relatively high at low wavelength. So in the UV light or in the blue light, but becomes relatively transparent once you move towards IR light, so red-shifted light. And obviously, ambient light would contain parts of, of this uh, wavelength as well, but the intensity would be inefficient to really trigger this. So you would have a bit of a high-power light source, but obviously you would choose a light source which doesn't harm the tissue or your body. I mean, obviously you don't want to hurt yourself to, yeah, just, to, just to cure your infection locally. But I mean, I mean, these are just some aspects. And I mean, the, this, this idea of having tiny nano robots that can just, you know, circulate your bloodstream and will attach to cancer or other infections or viruses and destroy them autonomously is something that I think has been written up in, in sci-fi books and, and, and movies over decades. Um, and is still inspiring a lot of people. Um, I, I personally 
thing. I, I'm not so much intrigued of injecting anything that I made in an animal or in a, in, in a biological system. It's just something that I don't know. I, I'm having a hard time imagining doing that, but never say never. Um, but um, I, I think there are a lot of great scientists out there that that are working on this already in, in clinical stage one, stage two studies. So I think it will only be a matter of time until a product like this will enter the market. You said the application for medicine, but there might be others as well, or not really? So um, at the moment, we are very much interested into transport properties. So with transport, um, I mean uh, mass transport, so molecular transport. And I think transport limitations are one of the core physical limitations in many applications. To name some examples, um, gas separation, for example, membrane-based gas separation or bulk-based gas separation where we work with porous materials do have intrinsic transport limitations simply because we utilize aspects of molecular sieving. So you can think of it like you have a macroscopic kitchen sieve and only gas molecules of a certain size will be able to pass through that sieve. The other ones will be retained by the sieve. Now, if you have ever tried to sift flour, for example, in the kitchen, you would know that you cannot simply put the flour on top and everything will fall through. You have to apply energy, you have to shake the sieve, you have to pound it against the wall, you may even have to grind on top of the sieve. And you have to do this because the particles, the individual flour particles, will block the pores of the sieve. So you need to apply some energy to stimulate the system for the flower to pass through. And the same thing has to be applied in porous materials on the molecular level. We can do that, for example, not really by shaking, but rather what you do is you increase the temperature. So you increase the kinetic energy of the gas molecules so they move faster and the likelihood of them hitting one of the holes will become bigger. As I mentioned, we could also think about now having a sieve that itself is intrinsically dynamic in which, for example, you have small, tiny motors that facilitate activated transport that are, act like a conveyor belt, which transports um, your individual particles through that pore so to reduce the resistance of the transport. You can also think of, and this is something that uh, I worked on during my PhD, of having uh, pores which are able to dynamically adjust their size. So this is a secondary aspect that we work on in my group, which is uh, often referred to as um, flexible framework materials or soft uh, framework materials, in which the framework itself and the pore itself can expand and shrink as a stimulation with light, for example, with change in temperature, or as a response to gas molecules itself. And so these are aspects which are quite new because often materials that are utilized in these applications are made to be very static, robust, and, and brittle to be able to withstand the high temperatures and the conditions that are applied. So we are kind of trying to utilize the exact opposite approach and kind of taking away most of these physical properties and utilizing dynamic features as something that is able to more efficiently sort out different sizes of molecules or directly respond to um, certain gas species or certain gas molecules. But to stay with the transport properties, gas separation is one uh, which is very prominent. It, it's also fair to say that this is a technology which is a big contributor to energy consumption. So I, I think, um, don't quote me on that, but I think roughly 10% of the world's energy consumption goes into chemical separation. 
So that might not necessarily only involve gas separation, but also separation of other chemicals, like in the petrochemical industry, for example. And so there is a large footprint that you could address by utilizing a system which would be more energy efficient, which could potentially work at lower energies, at lower temperatures, or could potentially be more efficient in a smaller scale. Another aspect where transport properties are very critical are, for example, batteries or fuel cells, where you kind of need to separate different uh, electrodes and you have transport properties from your different electrodes. And if you had a material that could kind of stimulate transport properties there, you would overcome a large barrier of that transport phenomenon. And there are other examples where, where molecular transport really is a critical feature that can be addressed. And I'm not saying that we try to make the next generation battery material or the next generation gas separator. What we really try to facilitate is um, materials, proof of concepts in which you can think of novel mechanisms that one could apply or think of uh, in these materials that can really utilize a completely different approach to overcome these limitations. To maybe give you an example, and I was very fortunate in my PhD to make a, um, a discovery of a new phenomenon that, that hasn't been thought of before. We termed this negative gas absorption. It's basically a process in which you have a very porous crystal. Um, these, these materials are called metal organic frameworks because they consist of metal ions and organic linkers or ligands. And this particular framework material, when exposed to gas molecules at a certain temperature, started to contract its pores at a certain loading of gas. Um, so you could think of as a sponge, and the sponge usually shrinks when you dry it, and when you expose it to water, it will expand. Now, this crystal acted like a sponge, but in the reverse fashion, it, it, it was expanded in the dry state, and once you would expose it to water, it would shrink. And so the intriguing aspect of this is not only was it shrinking, but it was also expelling gas molecules that it previously had taken up into its pores while shrinking. So it would be a sponge that would shrink when you expose it to water, and then it would give off water because of the shrinkage. So essentially, in a nutshell, what we designed is basically a, a burping or a farting crystal uh, <laughs> that was releasing gas due to this contraction. And and, and so you may think, okay, yeah, sure, I can squeeze the sponge, for example, to release water. But the intriguing property about this particular material is that it does this, it, it, there's no external trigger to it. It has the information and the mechanism of this contraction embedded in its structure. So there's no trigger whatsoever. It's literally only the crystals. It's a blue powder, the crystals in combination with gas at a certain temperature. And, and so this is really what got me hooked also on the underlying physical processes and the energy landscape. So the, the different states that the material could take and that we can describe physically um, that are able to give rise to this, to this kind of mechanism. And, and this, yeah, inverse sponge, let's call it like that. Uh, do you know why that happens? Uh, yes, I can maybe explain that on, an e on, a, uh, on a more common example. So if you take a straw that you use to, to drink a drink out of your glass, you would recognize that if you put it in water, the water would rise up of the straw due to capillary forces. And those capillary forces are basically the interactions of the fluid inside confined space of the straw. And now in this particular moth material, so in, in, this, in this porous crystal, 
during the loading of gas molecules, there are a lot of strong capillary forces that act upon the framework. But instead of the water rising up in the straw, in our case, the straw itself is is not very rigid. It has some deformation modes. And so instead of water rising up the straw, the straw simply shrinks. And you can think of it as the, as the macroscopic straw, which would shrink and then actually push up water out of the straw on the top. And so that's what that crystal does. So it utilizes those physical forces, but instead of counteracting it rigidly, it is able to dynamically respond to that force. And that is really what, what we try to work on is kind of push the limits of how you can not only design those materials for their mechanical properties. So for example, we, we had one research project where we kind of wanted to answer the question of what elasticity on a molecular level means. You could describe the deformation of the crystal by a buckling. So the building blocks themselves in this crystal are kind of bent and deformed. And so we made a series of materials in which we manipulated the chemistry of these building blocks and could show that there is also a kind of chemical correlation to elasticity of molecules. While obviously it would be very intriguing to just grab a molecule with tiny tweezers and try to bend it and, and form it and, and stretch it maybe, and we are able to actually investigate these properties by having those molecules embedded in a crystal because there all the individual building blocks are sort of equivalent, but they are embedded in a larger assembly, which we can then apply, for example, uh, microscopic forces on because there are now mesoscopic or microscopic objects. And so we can translate those forces then to all those building blocks. So you work a lot of uh, on materials that actually can change some properties. Is that like the molecular switches that you're talking about, or is that something different? And also, we, we actually brought this together a couple of years ago of really thinking about if I can use this deformation of a molecular switch to actually drive a transformation of a whole crystal. Now, that is complicated because if you think about a macroscopic building that would reassemble that framework, in essence, that's kind of what we do, right? We construct these molecular framework materials. We really think about a building block concept in which you have nodes and links, and those links could be considered struts or columns in a, in a macroscopic building. If you now wanted to change the overall structure of the building, so let's say you wanted the whole building to kind of flip sideways, every part, every column in that building would have to undergo that kind of flipping sideways. If only one column would do this, it wouldn't work. Well, essentially, that column wouldn't even be able to undergo those changes because the column would be constrained inside the building structure. So the force that you would need for this column to undergo this geometrical change, so a, let's say a small bending or a flip, would work if the column would stand freely individually on open ground. But if it's embedded in a larger assembly, it's constrained geometrically. So the actual underlying challenge is how do you generate a system in which all of the columns undergo that geometric change instantaneously at the same time in the same way because you could also have the scenario in which half of the columns flip to the left the other half to the right so you're left with an overall zero momentum or zero force on the on the framework and so this aspect of cooperativity is something that the assembly itself can stimulate simply because all the building blocks themselves are linked into each other 
if I have a critical amount of deformation, let's say 20% of your columns would undergo such a flip, it can be likely that the other 80% would just follow paths simply because for the overall system, it would be energetically more favorable to do that. Um, but it can also be the case that uh, that would not be the case. A secondary aspect to consider when you think about these deformations in a crystal lattice is something we call domain formation. So if you have a trigger, let's say on the first floor, and the same column also operates on the 50th floor, that kind of deformation would trigger throughout the building from top to bottom and from bottom to top, so they would meet at some point in the middle. But what you do if the top column flips to the left and the bottom column flips to the right, then at some point you would form a grain boundary at which the system would be like, oh, oops, um, I didn't think that you also flipped, but on the other side of the crystal. And so this can be very challenging because now uh, you have different domains inside a single particle, which uh, intrinsically kind of counteract each other. And so these are aspects of, let's say, solid-state chemistry, which are very well known for, for decades, but which for these molecular machine fields, which often treats molecules as individual specimens, has no relevance whatsoever, simply because all you do is you investigate a single molecule. And so there are certain aspects of these assemblies that can make things very challenging. But on the other hand, if there is, if you wanted to co-align and cooperatively link individual machines, you can utilize the aspect of this regular array in a crystal lattice to actually do something like that. You can think of uh, oscillating dynamics, which are somewhat waves that propagate throughout this crystal. And, and this uh, is, is something that you can tune molecularly by changing the nature of your individual molecule or by also potentially changing the overall structure of the assembly. And, and so I, I often try to describe this as somewhat of a molecular clockwork in which you think that individual parts all are interlinked and they kind of work together. But essentially, it's a little bit more complex than that. And is there an easy way to explain that, how you synchronize those molecules? So there are two essential ways. You can either use an external stimulus for synchronization. So light, for example, is something that is relatively fast. So the speed of light is much faster than the individual dynamics of the molecules. So you could argue that if I turn on a light source, all the molecules should be stimulated instantaneously at the same time. However, there's the problem that if you have a very high density of these machines, you may only excite the first layer of the machines and the layer below that may already get 50% less of the photons that the first layer got. So the probability of that being simultaneously excited drastically increases the further you move into the crystal. Um, electrochemical stimulations can be something which would work as well. So an electric field, for example, would also really um, electrochemical stimulation um, where you have uh, redox reactions but also any chemical reactions per se is usually not very uh, useful for having really collective or instantaneous excitation simply because you have molecular transport processes assigned to this. If you want to fuel something, that fuel has to get to that molecule first, and that will be uh, associated with the time lag. Another aspect, uh, I think, beyond thinking from the point of view of, your, of the stimulation is actually design your system in a way that you would only need to excite a single machine and that excitational dynamic is translated throughout the crystal lattice 
by intramolecular interaction. So that would be the example of your of your molecular clockwork, in which you only have one motor or one kind of coil that drives the dynamics of this clockwork, and then those dynamics are kind of extended over the larger machinery of the clock. And this is something we actually try at the moment, but it's challenging for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. And actually, this trigger of uh, an energy source uh, makes me think of a paper of you that I would like to talk about. I'm going to read the title so I don't make any mistakes. Visible light-driven rotation of molecular motors in a dual-function metal-organic framework enabled by energy transfer. That's quite a mouthful. <laughs> that was a paper of 2020. Um, I will put it in the show notes. Um, but, okay, so basically... The machines that you describe capture light energy and revert that or convert that into motion. How does that work? How does it the machine capture light and how does it convert that energy into motion? So first of all, I have to give a lot of credit for that particular paper to Wojciech Danowski, who is the first author and, and also the mastermind behind all of these studies. So he's really a brilliant chemist that has also faced a lot of these challenges early on of incorporating these machines. And I'm quite fortunate to be part of this, of this study. Essentially, the motors themselves operate in a sense that they, they have a thermodynamic ground state in, in which there's no motion or only vibrational motion in the molecule going on. The motor is able to absorb a photon to form a photo-excited state, which results in a 180 or degree flip of this rotor unit. It's the so-called photoisomerization of this machine. It's a mechanism very well known for molecular switches, for example, like azobenzenes. You can think of it like you, you excite uh, an electron in this excited state where it has more energy, and obviously it wants to get rid of that energy. It wants to go back to the ground state, but it, it doesn't do that via directly following the same path uh, as it was excited, but it does that by a relaxation to a state in which basically this flip can occur. So you can think of it like if you have a, a ratchet and you remove the, the break in between the rotation. So in the, in the ground state, that rotation is prohibited or the barrier for that rotation is very high because you have a, a double bond and that pi system kind of constrains the free rotation. In the excited state, that double bond is broken up and you kind of liberate that rotation. But it cannot uh, rotate freely. It can only rotate 180 degrees because there's some steric bulk on it. And so parts of the molecule itself block each other. And, and so you need a second photon and a second kind of 180-degree flip to end up in a full 360-degree rotation. And in between these photo excitation steps, there are thermal relaxation processes. So you require also some thermal energy that convert part of that rotation to overcome that barrier. But the actual elegance of this particular research paper that you mentioned is these light-driven molecular motors, they themselves are active in the UV range. So you need relatively high energetic photons, the photons that would cause uh, sunburn, for example, if you walk outside. And so obviously, if you wanted to apply this, for example, also in biological systems as drug carriers or active antibiotics, you obviously don't want to generate sunburn on your patient. So what you would like is to shift the excitation wavelength to energetic lower photons, so redshifting, 
to higher wavelengths. And you can do this chemically by changing, extending the pi system, the conjugation of this. This is a very common feature. You can do this by introducing heteroatoms or even, even transition metals. Um, but all of that requires a lot of chemical modification. So it's very tedious to do this very synthetically effort. Um, and, and so Wojtek's idea was that instead of changing the molecular structure of the motor, we can utilize a secondary building block in our mod, in our framework. And that's the brilliance of the chemistry of molecular frameworks uh, or metal organic frameworks. And specifically, we can generate structures in which multiple different building blocks are co-assembled in a regular fashion. So in this particular paper, we form a so-called pillared layer material in which the layers consist of a dye, a photosensitizer, a palladium porphyrin. Porphyrins are very common molecular motifs in biology. For example, in chlorophyll, there, there are porphyrins involved, but also in our bloodstream. And these sheets can act as photosensitizers, which take up energy in the redshifted spectrum. So they take up low energy photons. And because these sheets of these dyes, these porphyrins, are pillared with the molecular motors, there's a very close proximity of these two molecules. And so the porphyrins can take up the energy from your redshifted light source and can energy transfer or can transfer that energy onto the motor and drive the rotation. So this mechanism of rotation that I just described with energy um, at a wavelength of excitation where the motors themselves would not be active. So if you would apply the same light source of those motors, the redshifted light source, the motors themselves would not be able to rotate simply because that energetic barrier would be too high. And so this is a very elegant uh, approach because it does demonstrate that we can not only utilize those frameworks as a scaffold to incorporate those dynamic molecules, but we can utilize additional functionality and co-crystallization with a dye, a photosensitizer, for example, in the future, potentially with other active molecules that allow us to utilize different excitation motives, different wavelengths, low energy photons to drive a process which otherwise in solution would not be possible to be driven. And that, in, in essence, is the underlying aspect of this particular work. So in one sentence described, you basically it's the first time you can use different components in a crystalline material to drive dynamics on a fashion where each individual component itself would not be able to show that process. To see if I understand this correctly. So you have the, the machine which can rotate, but it's blocked be because of a double binding. And when energy like light energy is absorbed, the binding relaxes or you have a single binding and then it can rotate 180 degrees. And if you have another light uh, or a photon falling onto the machine, then it can rotate a full circle. And then you have back the original molecule. Yes. The problem is that it only works with high energy, like UV light. Exactly. Okay. And so what you did here was combine another molecule like comparable to chlorophyll, uh, a chromoform, for example, that absorbs other light energy and transfers that light energy to the machine. So to have it rotate on light energy, that would not be possible for the machine alone. Yes, exactly. Okay. Whew. 
I'm happy I, I was right because I thought well, this is insane. The overall mechanism itself is also not fully understood because photochemically mm -hmm. this is quite complicated, but it somewhat is also reminiscent of how um, plants and photosynthesis works because there you also have a sensitizer which absorbs the light source, but you require uh, multiple photons to actually then transfer the light energy into chemical energy and ultimately end up of producing sugar, which now we use then to eat and, and utilize that energy, uh, chemical energy to, to live, basically. And, and so the, the process itself is relatively complex, but it's very reminiscent of, of those, again, biological systems, which have utilized this already. Uh, I mean, I don't know when the first plants started to grow on our planet, but probably maybe a million years ago. Yeah, and, millions of years ago. <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, uh, we are able to very simplistically kind of mirror such systems in a solid state system. So in a crystalline material, which usually you would not really consider to, to show these functions or the coupling of this photo excitation with also intrinsic dynamics. So, and you use the light capturing or the system of light capturing from photosynthesis. Yeah, photosynthesis is also you capture or convert six molecules of carbon dioxide and water to six molecules of oxygen and one molecule of sugar by using that light energy. Does that open some doors for artificial photosynthesis? Yes, so it's certainly something that in the future we would like to discuss in the in the department where I currently work at at the Max Planck Institute. We have a large research consortium on hydrogen evolution, so photochemical hydrogen evolution, but also photochemical or electrochemical CO2 reduction. I mean, those are critical reactions that one needs to master to kind of overcome the impact of CO2 as a, as a greenhouse gas, but also as of hydrogen as a potential green and renewable energy source. So both of these reactions are very critical. And the processes we use in the lab to undergo these reactions are very different to what uh, biological systems use. I mean, there there's a lot of chemical conversions involved and a lot of molecular machines for that matter that really drive this process. And in fact, photosynthesis itself, if you think of it as the overall energy efficiency is uh, relatively poor in terms of the efficiency. So the efficiency, I think, overall is less than than one percent. So again, don't quote me on that. But it's certainly not a very efficient process, and the reason for that is because you obviously have losses, photochemical losses, but also photophysical losses of energy in that process. And as you mentioned, you require a lot of steps to actually end up with your sugar molecule, right? You need to run this reaction. To six times so you, you need to generate six times that, that energy and all of that has to be aligned ideally without any kind of uh, losses in the process and that that doesn't work and uh, I, I think we are we are in artificial systems which can perform uh, better than biological systems but then again um, in artificial systems an artificial photocatalyst doesn't have to live you know it doesn't have to it doesn't have to grow Uh, it's yeah. it's just designed for a single purpose, which is to convert water into hydrogen, for example. But nevertheless, the underlying physical mechanisms are very intriguing. And, and this is something that we are now also starting a little bit of work in because it makes just sense if you think of your machines being run by light. If you think of it that your motor only runs at a certain specific wavelength, you still have 95% of the spectrum of light from so solar light left that you could do other chemistry with. So why not use that energy 
to, for example, uh, convert water into hydrogen or CO2 into other useful molecules. Certainly that is, that is an idea, but I think we are, we are still a couple of years away from achieving something like that. You should include rotors, but like big rotors. So we have like a moving plant, a, a moving <laughs> artificial plant. Our neighbor institute, the Max Planck Institute for Intelligent Systems, they work a lot with with the robotics and and kind of in, intelligent systems, whatever the word intelligence may mean in that context. But this is certainly also intriguing if you think about a plant. It's able to responsively change the orientation of its leaves, for example, to foster greater um, exposure to sunlight. And so, if you ask me, I think the vast majority of solar panels that we nowadays use are really static they're fixed on roofs or somewhere on the ground i know that there are some some initiatives of making kind of mobile solar panels that kind of follow with the sun but at the end of the day the energy input that you have for this kind of motion of the solar panel itself is something that you need to first generate from your solar panel because otherwise your overall energy efficiency would be would be lower so it would obviously be very intriguing to find a system which autonomously kind of operates in the sense that it aligns itself with the light source. And maybe another direction also would be to store the energy, like it's a, it's a molecular machine that is moving based on light energy. Can you stare, uh, store sorry, that energy for that's used for movement? Yes, a very intriguing question. In fact, there were recently two studies um, uh, by, by groups. One was for, uh, from Ben Ferinka and uh, Michael Katan, um, who is a group leader now in Berlin. And the second study was conducted by Nikolai Chusepone, more or less the same design. What they did is they attached strings to the molecular motor and fixed them on the rotor part and the stator part. And when you now start to rotate the motor, those uh, strings will start to coil up, right? Because um, both of the ends are fixed. So you would form a string and if you think you can think of it like a rubber band um, which is fixed on the bottom you take a stick and you start to spin the stick and that rubber band will start to coil up and you would store mechanical energy by coiling up each coil will be a certain storage of energy and uh, you can do this on the molecular level up to a certain degree and they have very well described in, in both works how far you can push this in fact you can even constrain those strings to a degree that the bonds in, in the molecular strings will break and the stress will be released. It's like if your rubber can take it anymore, it will just, you know, snatch. And, and so this would be a very elegant or creative way of converting solar energy into mechanical energy. You know, nowadays, there are some initiatives where um, energy storage is also done mechanically, for example, by taking very big concrete or heavy concrete blocks that are lifted up by electricity when there's a lot of wind and uh, sunlight, solar electricity during the day. And at night, that weight is lowered again, driving an electrical motor, again, producing electricity. So a similar kind of energy storage fashion and mechanical energy actually can also be done on the, on the molecular level, where you can think of that this strain energy uh, in the molecular switch can then be released, for example, by, uh, by a trigger like temperature change or a chemical trigger. You have told us a lot on different topics of, of these motors and these machines. What are some of the biggest breakthroughs that you foresee in the field in the near future? 
what, what really is something that a lot of people on a molecular level work on is this idea of a molecular assembler. So you can utilize these dynamics and machines to generate other molecules. So really the idea also of Richard Feynman making nanoscopic machines that can then produce other nanoscopic machines or molecules. That is certainly a vision that has been out there for for several decades now. And I think a lot of people still envision that this is, is possible. And I'm also, I mean, a firm believer in fundamental science. You There should, shouldn't be any limitations. Your imagination should should be the the limitation so to speak i think in terms of the field that we currently work at demonstrating this aspect of directed transport via such dynamic molecules would really be a game changer because that means that if you could integrate that in devices in nanofluidic devices you can carry out diagnostics and other things inside such, such systems with functionality that you wouldn't have with any other systems and um, so a lot of DNA sequencing stuff, but also microanalytics and microdiagnostics are done on, on lab on the chips devices where miniaturization has really yielded incredible functionality. So if you could even bring this down several orders of magnitude on the molecular level, that would certainly be uh, amazing. And for that regard, I think this, this idea of molecular pumping or directional transport is an intriguing one. Beyond that, a big vision that I would like to work towards to is really this collective operation of different machines. So being able to translate a certain aspect of dynamics, um, for example, translate unidirectional rotation of a motor into unidirectional translation of a shuttle that then can kick off some other process that then again can kick off some other chemical, physical chemical process. On the molecular level, in inside a crystal, where trillions and trillions of these machines kind of collectively operate, and and when when I was when I was a postdoc, I was usually taking these these tiny machines, the, the powders, and I would walk up to people and I would hold the vials to their ear and I was like, "Can you hear it?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And it's like switch on the light source, and then you can hear a, a small boom boom. Um, of the motors that operate in the crystal. And people <laughs> thought I was crazy, but in fact now a lot of people actually call the motors that we make boom booms. Um, so <laughs> so um, it, it, it's kind of these things, I guess, I guess when you spend too much time in the lab, you get a little bit crazy at, at some point. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I kind of still like to, to see it that way. And, and maybe at some point we can even hear molecular machines operate. That would be awesome. All right. Uh, so more largely directional movement and the coordination of movement of a lot of uh, different molecules together yes. or molecular machines. If there is one thing that you think our listeners should remember, what should it be? Don't care about application. Fundamental research is, is curiosity. Obviously, uh, we should always keep in mind that our research matters and it, it, it will make the difference at some point. But I, I tell this to, this to the members of my group as well. If you are at a university, you know, the the product of that university is you, it's the researcher. Utilize that, that time and period in your life where you can really research without a deeper application, a deeper product to care for, but really be creative, try to understand how processes work, and don't think about saving the world with a, an application. If you do so, you will only struggle to drive towards that goal. You know, if you have an open mind and you try to work creatively, those inventions or discoveries may come by themselves. I mean, uh, I was I was super fortunate in my life to have already made such a discovery completely by accident. This was not planned at all. 
But I don't end, believe you. It, it was planned. <laughs> no, I, I can tell you for sure that it that it wasn't. And I mean, we were all quite quite surprised about the farting moth crystals at, at the end of the day. But I guess that's another story to tell. But ultimately, I would say stay creative, stay have an open mind, be curious, try to understand, have the mindset of a little child that just wants to understand how things work. And then you will understand later on if it, it's really towards trying to invent new technology or t- try to bring a product further, then you will have the right mindset. Think outside the box. Borders in science basically should not exist. You should keep an open mind. And I guess another advice that I can give is try to work interdisciplinary or even transdisciplinary. Look out for things that other people do. You might not understand the language they use. You might not understand the acronyms they use or the methods, but try to understand why they do it, what the underlying mechanism is, and maybe that could be intriguing uh, for what you're looking for. And I guess, for a matter of fact, that's only not true for chemical or physical sciences, but for any kind of research area, for that matter. And so... um Stay educated, educate others about the challenges that we face, but have an open mind for other aspects and and technologies and mechanisms. Okay, so we'll stop caring about all the applications and just care about the science of it all. Well, if you do fundamental research, right, that's the luxury that, um, that we have and that the taxpayer or the funding agencies allow us to do. And I mean, this is a, a, a great good. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't come for free, but it's also I don't I don't take that for granted, you know. Like hmm. um, we work on things where it's very difficult to predict what impact they would have. The only imminent impact that I can see at the moment is that I have great PhD uh, researchers or postdocs to work together and try to reinvent the world. And at the end of the day, they will hopefully carry that spirit along and and either teach the next generation or end up at a company which will make the next discovery of how to generate more efficient batteries or or photosynthesis. And so that's that's what I'm striving for and that's what gets me up in the morning and lets me go to work. This was the 19th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Simon Krause for the information. Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm-hmm.